You are Locked On Hawks, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Hawks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 60 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, and with me today, a uh, much more famous guest than I, than I actually am in this world. Uh, his name is Dan Wolken. He's a college football writer for USA Today. What's going on, Dan? Brad, thanks for having me on the podcast. Just, uh, just excited to get the NBA season going. For sure. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday evening as games are about to get underway. This will go up on Wednesday, but uh, we'll be in the midst of basketball land before you know it. Um, of course, I think people will probably be curious as to why you are coming on a Atlanta Hawks podcast. So tell people why you would be interested in the Hawks. I know we talk a lot on Twitter, but for people that don't know, fill them in on your on your Hawks affiliation. Well, I've been a big NBA fan ever since I was a kid, and uh, I loved the NBA. I, I sort of got away from it for a while, uh, probably like right after I got out of college, sort of in the mid-2000s, I, the NBA just kind of went through that period where it wasn't that interesting. you know. And then I got really, really into it again, and three years ago, I moved to Atlanta, three and a half years ago now, when I got the job at USA Today and moved down here. You know, I didn't really have a connection to Atlanta. I just moved down because this was kind of a good place to be if you're going to be the college football writer at USA Today, <laughs> being yeah. uh, right in the middle of all these schools and the airport and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, I bought a house here, put down roots and, you know, decided that this was going to be my city and uh, adopted the Hawks as, as my team. So um, it's been it's been a good time to move here and to adopt the Hawks for my NBA fandom because they've been good and fun and entertaining. And, uh, you know, I, I pretty much watch just about every game unless I've got something else going on. So, uh, and of course I enjoy the podcast and enjoy the, uh, the blog and it's, it's great. Yeah. People that follow you probably have caught on by now that you're, that you're a Hawks guy from your, from your twits, from your tweets, I should say. But, uh, I figured people people would at least want to be curious about that. They didn't know the backstory. Um, I'm actually going to get started start started with something that I actually saw you interact with some people on Twitter about on Monday, and that is the concept of tanking in the NBA and sort of the rebuilding thing. I I, I talk about tanking and rebuilding a lot when it comes to the Hawks. Uh, it seems like from what I know of you, you're pretty much anti-tanking in terms of a way to build long term. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to see what how you feel about the you know there's some stuff about the NBA being a two-team league right now. You think it's bad for the league? Uh, just kind of uh, that th- it's in this mindset where like people think um, in the long term that you actually have to tank to get to kind of bottom out to get better or are you on board with something that the Hawks are doing which is kind of staying afloat and seeing uh, if something just pops and kind of lands perfectly for them. So I understand the notion that if you're not on track to seriously contend for a championship that the impulse is to just tear everything down and start over and get those draft picks and build back up from the, from the bottom because yes the truth is if you are going to win a championship in the NBA most likely you have to get a true superstar a top 5 player in the league maybe even a top 3 player in the league to lead your team and 
really the most likely way to land that player is through the draft. I understand all of that. But I do have a problem with what I call NBA Twitter, hashtag NBA Twitter. <laughs> and Which I'm a member of, by the way, of yes. course. And, and a lot of the bloggers and uh, maybe a little bit more, uh, sometimes the analytics-based um, commentators, who I, I totally respect their work. I'm not an anti-analytics guy. I'm a pro-analytics guy. But I think that a lot of those folks fetishize the rebuild. And they make it into something that it's not necessarily guaranteed to be. Uh, I mean, look at the 76ers and look at how long they were bad. And frankly, they could still be bad for another few years. And they there's no guarantee that any of this work that they've done and all of this pain they've gone through is going to amount to anything. And I just believe that the media and the NBA blogosphere does not give enough credence to the fact that the NBA is fundamentally an entertainment product. And there is value in aspiring to something other than winning a championship. And look, I have no doubt that the Hawks organization and uh, Tony Ressler and Mike Boonholzer they would love to get on a path to win a championship if they could. But I think they also realize that the product that they have right now is a good product. It's a product that is fun to watch. Um, they've improved their season ticket numbers. They have brought in new fans. Now, maybe not enough or as many as people would like, but they've brought in new fans like me who pay money to go down to the arena and watch good basketball. And as a fan and as somebody who buys tickets, I have a different perspective. I am satisfied with the Atlanta Hawks putting a good product on the floor and not tearing it down in the hope of some pie in the sky rebuild that may or may not come to fruition five years from now. I think what they're doing, which is trying to maintain a, a certain level of um, you know, of, of competitiveness where they're going to make the playoffs and, you know, they have a chance to get to a West, uh, to an Eastern conference final, as long as they feel like they're on track to do that, I have no problem with what they're doing. Now, look, if things go South and go badly and there's no legitimate option to keeping the team at this level of competitiveness, then yes, I think you have to then look at other at other possibilities. But for now with this team, I just think that the, the NBA blogosphere is way too quick to discount and throw away what is a good competitive product that makes money and sells tickets and entertains people. Yeah, I think I'm with you for the most part on that. I, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of wanting to jump to the rebuild probably a little bit too quick. But I always try to, at least when I present that option, talk about the fact that, look, the Hawks have to operate a business, uh, for, um, you know, first and foremost. And this is not a city that would take kindly, in my view, as someone who grew up here, to a rebuild. Uh, the fans will not be coming to Phillips Arena for a team that's bad. We saw that before the Joe Johnson and Mike Woodson arrival. Like, well, and frankly, very few markets would. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's not that's just the, Atlanta. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I think Atlanta is almost 
further on the end of the spectrum uh, than most because they they already have some trouble drawing fans. We don't want to get into that too deeply here, of course, but it's I would not take kindly. So your point there is a very very important one in that they they would be risking quite a bit. Uh, and, and any new fan, I mean, you, you you risk alienating new fans that you've made over the last couple of years by if you blow it up. You're testing their patience quite considerably, and you know the diehards will be with you, but the diehards may leave and come back even. And it's one of those things where if you if you don't get good pretty quickly, then uh, you'll end up in a situation like, like Philly because Philly has a bunch of diehard fans, and that's more actually probably more of a basketball town than Atlanta is, and they still have tr- they still have a lot of trouble filling the arena because of just how bad they've been for so long. So that's a huge point. I, I, well, I, I know I wanted to ask you about that right right away, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's, but well, but think about everything that has to go right. Like let's just say, oh for sure. Let, let's just say Atlanta decides to blow it up this year. You know they're they're um, you know they're falling out of the playoff race. It's not a great, good season, and they just decide to to go for the tank. Well, so then you've got to execute trades for you know for the players who have value, like Paul Millsap and and whoever else is tradable. You have to make sure that that those those assets may be tied to what um, another team how another team finishes. It's tied to ping pong balls. It's tied to then making the right decision and in, in the draft. It's then tied to whether that player is going to develop, remain hungry, um, and be healthy and, you know, and grow past, um, you know, or, or basically grow to the ceiling that you envision for them. Like, and then you have to do that all over again the next year and then the next year. And I just don't think there's any guarantee. So I am happy with what they've done. And, you know, I still think that this roster is presently constructed. They they have different paths that they can take depending on how this season goes, how the Paul Millsap free agency next year goes. And, you know, you, if you've, you've got Dwight, you've got Bays, you've got Schroeder locked in, I think you can then work around that group and try to improve in different ways. So I think they've got some flexibility. Like I, I am, I think they're in a pretty good situation. I know you are a little more pessimistic. I am more, let's just see what happens and it could go well. It couldn't go not so well, but I'm excited to see how, how it turns out. For sure. I mean, I am pretty pessimistic in terms of uh, this year versus uh, the, the more recent past. But at the same time, I also agree that like if this team if this team came out of the box and won you know forty eight games this year, that wouldn't surprise me at all if things go well. And look, that's that's probably good for like a four seed in the East, and that's what they've basically been outside of two years ago when they jumped up to sixty and had that you know for as much as much fun as it was, it was a little bit fluky. I think we can all agree on that just to actually win sixty games. But aside from that, this has basically been a team that's been between you know the three and six seed three and seven seed for quite a while now and that this team this year could certainly be that and while I didn't love what they did in the offseason look I mean they, they kept it afloat and it's going to be a, a for a, at least for a lot of people a more entertaining product because of the fact that you know Dwight's a big name they brought in a big name that'll bring, bring some casual fans in and it may not it may not be as pretty to watch uh, for like people like me who are basketball diehards and just like that ball movement offense that Budenholzer was implementing it's going to be a very intriguing team. There are a ton of storylines. Like I haven't complained from from a content perspective. I know that there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about with this team uh, versus uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, even internally, the Hawks have kind of acknowledged that they're pretty boring. 
in terms of uh, kind of having a bunch of guys who are just good guys, good veterans who don't really move the needle a ton. And now with Howard in the middle and and really even Schroeder at point guard, they have some personality and some uh, some divisiveness, and that that could actually be good, I think, from people uh, for pe- keeping people engaged. Well, I'll say this: um, I enjoyed watching the team the last two years. Certainly, I I thought I thought the sixty win team. Yes, was a little bit fluky in that direction. I thought last year's team was maybe a little fluky in the other direction where, you know, they, they probably should have won five more games just based on last possession, mm-hmm. overtime. They didn't win an overtime game, I don't think. Um, or maybe they, they won one. The record in overtime was terrible. Uh, so they actually probably, you know, I thought I thought they played more like a, you know, 50 two or 53 yeah, I mean, win team. They were, uh, they were 51, 31 expected win loss. If you just go by point, point differential. So that kind of right. sticks to what you're saying. Right. So, but, but the one thing I'll say is I think they, I think the fundamental concept of that team as it existed was the Millsap Horford front court where you had two, basically play, you have two front court players who were both undersized for their position and had overlapping skill sets, right? Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely that's definitely accurate. I would say right. And I just think that after seeing that for two years, for the last two years, um, it was good, but it was only going to be so good because what would invariably happen with that with that combination was you would get into the Cleveland series and it would be just a magnification of what you would see as a weakness during the regular season where there were so many nights last year, for instance, where the Hawks would outshoot somebody, they would play better defense than somebody, and they would commit fewer turnovers. And yet at the end of the game, they would lose because they were just getting smoked on the boards and, you know, couldn't get, couldn't get those easy, you know, baskets off a pick and roll you know, at the end of games where that's sort of the, the go-to play for all, for most teams. You know, you just run that pick and roll and you see what you can get. And so you just had too many times last year where offensive rebounding, defensive rebounding, and inability to run something to get a layup or a dunk at the end of the game. And instead, you know, it's a baseline 15-footer from Horford or, you know, an elbow jumper from Millsap. And, you know, and those are 40% shots. So... I understand, and I'm not saying that they made the right decision or the wrong decision, but I I understand the decision to say, you know what, that combination, we got as much out of it as we could. It was fun. It was unique. And it certainly, you know, the basketball geeks salivated over themselves (laughs) watching it. But, you know, maybe we need to do something a little different. And if Al Horford is not going to take the money or if, if it's going to, or if it's going to take a full five-year max to bring him back, why not try the Dwight option? And I think it's, I think it's going to be interesting to see. I think you're going to get a lot of praise from a lot of fans who hate what I say. I don't agree with you on this one, well, uh, but I'm no. not saying it's right or wrong. I'm oh, just saying no. different, different in this situation, I think is worth the attempt, especially on what I think is a fairly friendly contract with Dwight and what would not have been a friendly contract without? That's all fair. I would say, you know, the three-year contract for Dwight is is much more favorable than five for Al. I mean, even as much as I like Al, I'm pretty 
pretty on board with the fact that 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 fifth year, if they had given it, would have been a bad uh, in terms of financial investments. I would have probably done it, but I would have done it knowing that the end of that contract would have been an overpay for Al. So I totally get it from that standpoint. And look, my Budenholzer has been pretty upfront about the fact that they wanted to address the rebounding issue. They keep talking about rebounding publicly as something that Dwight's going to bring. And while they're not they're not trying to kill Al, that's that's just a, that's just kind of the way it is. Al, you know, for me, a lot of it was style. At least at least a part of it was the way the Hawks played and had him on the out on the perimeter more often so that kind of magnified it but look he's not as good of a rebounder and as a pure rim protector as Dwight Howard is Al had his strengths Dwight has his strengths it's gonna be very different to watch I, th- I do think Dennis Schroeder is a better pair with Dwight so that makes it I think that that made a lot of the Teague stuff make sense as well knowing that Al was probably going to get away I'm sure they probably thought that when they made the Teague move and knowing they had to pick one of those guys so they're going in a different direction it's, uh, it's much more conventional which I think excites some people and I think it's going to be interesting because uh, I think I do think Howard and Schroeder will play off each other in the best possible way, and if they both succeed at the highest level that, that they that they can succeed, it certainly can work and work and work very well. Well, I'll say this: um, Dennis is certainly going to increase my nine dollar beer consumption uh, at <laughs> sure. uh, at Phillips Arena this year. I can I can pretty much go ahead and predict that. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about Dennis just because he is so polarizing. I think a lot of people locally are very excited for Dennis, but at the same time, he's still super young, and I think people are forgetting just how infuriating he can be at times. And while that probably levels itself out with age a little bit, we saw that with Teague. Teague got a lot more steady as he got older. I'm not sure Schroeder has that personality where he's gonna level out as much. It was always interesting to watch the Hawks the last two years and the contrast because Teague is so steady, he's almost um, just neutral. You know what I mean? Like that's how he's he off a, the court too. He's just, he's right. always that guy. He's a he's a neutral personality, and at times, what you would like what I was what I would always say about Jeff Teague is when he is good, he is really really good. But you only got that Jeff Teague maybe one out of four games, and then you'd get for the other, for two of the other four, uh, you know, a guy who, um, was inconsistent. And then the the other, the the other one out of four, it would be like he, you know, overslept, you know, for the start of the game. And he just, (laughs) he always, he he would have this sort of spacey look in his, in his eyes, you know, walking around, like just kind of out of it, you know, the out of it, Jeff Teague look. And yet Dennis is kind of this live wire, um, who's, you know, just, he's picking up guys full court. He's a little bit out of control. Um, you know, he's talking smack, but the one thing about Dennis that I think, uh, the fans appreciate and we'll see if it can be harnessed is he, he is, he is, his compete level is always turned up. Whereas it felt like Jeff Teague's compete level was, you know, not always there. So, uh, I think that's, ultimately why the you know the decision makers for the franchise knowing they were only going to take one of the two long term went with the guy who was not only younger but just is is super competitive and you know is a contrast with a guy who who I think his coolness on the court um was a bit of a detriment 
For sure. The age, you know, the age and the contract status that Dennis will be a restricted free agent, that, that can't be overlooked. Those were both big factors. But I, as you're kind of saying, you know, Schroeder was was Bud's guy, was Wes Wilcox's guy, much more much more so than Teague. And while I think they probably would agree that Teague was the better player, uh, at, at least as, as currently constructed, you know, Schroeder's upside is higher. He is a guy who, as I always say, he thinks he's the best player on the court, for better or worse. Dennis is a, a guy who uh, it, it's more than just confidence. It's borderline cockiness, and that that's actually a good thing a, a lot of the time. Uh, sometimes it gets him, it gets him in trouble, and when he's taking shots, he probably shouldn't take. And I think his usage rate's going to be through the roof this year. But they also want that, and they probably expect it. So uh, his leash will be longer. It'll be interesting to see what he what he does with that leash, uh, knowing that it was pretty short at times last year, where Dennis would kind of just disappear for long stretches because Bud kind of just got sick of him. It felt like, um, but you know, that, now he doesn't really have that option. It's going to be a lot of Schroeder, and it's going to be more fun. I think you know Teague when he was very good, as you said, like playoff Teague is, was the was the mantra with him when he when he had it going. It was a lot of fun to watch. But the times when he would sleepwalk, uh, that's yeah, that's just it's really a great description of it because he would be infuriating. I know to a lot of fans who I would always hear from is like you know why can't Teague like why does Teague look like he's not, like like he's not even trying and like he is trying, but it was that thing where he just he looked like a guy who just wasn't as interested. Well, and that's just his, that's just that's just his personality. But in the end, that matters to fans. I know that. Well, I'll give you this. My least favorite piece of sports um, analysis, and this goes across every sport, every level, college, pro, whatever, is when people say, if only a guy could do X, boy, he would be really awesome. Oh, for sure. I hit that. You know, and, and yet what you don't realize is that's, that's part of who they are. Like, well, it's Dwight, Dwight Howard's free throw shooting. This year, right. for instance. <laughs> right. But all, right. But also with Jeff Teague, well, boy, why can't Jeff Teague play with that same energy level yep. and engagement every game? Because he can't. And that's why he's Jeff Teague and, and not, you know, one of the top five point guards in the NBA. That's just who he is. That's part of what makes him and, 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 his, and his place in the NBA hierarchy. So you have to sort of just take all that into account. Um, I think the. I don't know how this thing is going to go with Dennis. You know, we'll see. But the one thing I can guarantee is uh, I don't think your Twitter feed or mine will ever complain again about not being able to get off a shot in end-of-game situations. No, he'll get it up. Dennis is not shy. If he can't get it up, it's going to be because three guys are on him, and hopefully he'll have developed to the fact where he'll be able to find a guy who can. But uh, no, that's not that's not going to be an issue anymore, I don't think, with Dennis. He's, he's very not shy. Uh, I do want to ask you about a couple other guys. Uh, the you know the the picks to have to add Torian Prince and DeAndre Bembry were ones that I liked. Um, but at the same time, they were ones that I think a lot of the fan base was kind of uh, divided on because they're they're veteran college guys who are kind of just very hawksy, very you know kind of supporting role players. Neither one of those guys has real huge upside. What do you think about those picks and uh, kind of how they fit into the whole grand scheme here? Well, I'll offer as a disclaimer that um, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the NBA draft is, it's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> people have, people have strong opinions on these guys and I do too. And uh, you know, that Twitter account old takes exposed uh, has, uh, has stung me on a few players that I thought were going to be good <laughs> NBA players. And, and, you know, we all have hits and misses. Let's just put it that way. Um, actually, R.J. Hunter was one of my hits. I, I was never really sold on R.J. Hunter coming out of college. And uh, you mean the Hawks? Guess, you mean the Hawks shouldn't sign him right now, Dan? Because people people keep asking me about that. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, 
for no, I, 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 I loved him at Georgia state, obviously. And, you know, he may have a, he may have a place in the NBA at some point, but, um, I was never sold on him as, as, you know, a guy you should use a first round pick on, you know, and the truth is you, you go through these old drafts and most of the players don't, they're, they're not what you, what people talk about them being on draft night, you know, either better or worse. Um, and you know, we, everyone stresses over, you know, who you pick at, at 18. And the truth is most of the time, whoever you pick at 18 is going to be irrelevant, uh, long-term having said that, you know, I didn't watch much Bembry in college. I just didn't see St. Joe's very often. Watching him in the summer league, I get it. You know, I get what uh, they think he can be. We'll just have to see how he develops his skills. And obviously, if you don't have a jump shot at all, you know, playing that wing position, I just think is very hard in the NBA unless you're just amazing at everything else. And he does not have a jump shot. I mean, it's bad. They think they're going to teach him to him, but yeah, he definitely does not have right. one right now. So I think he's a little bit more of a long-term, you know, just we'll see. Um, as far as Prince, I think that's a so- I think that was a solid pick. I think he looked in the preseason like he belonged, and I think he can help. And I think that, you know, he is a a guy who uh, is going to get in there and scrap. You know, he's he's bigger than I thought he would be. Um, seeing him in person, uh, and I think having that kind of size on the wing, you know, and if he can shoot it a little bit. I, I think he's got a future. Absolutely. And that's the first thing that struck me about him when I stood, I stood next to him in Las Vegas is that he was thicker than I thought he would yeah. be. I mean, he did play some center even at Baylor, but they were playing a very, very strange sort of setup. You know, Baylor plays zone defense, which is a big thing that I've talked about as Prince uh, kind of tempering expectations about his defense. But he's looked good on that end uh, as much as a rookie can look good on that end because, you know, rookies kind of are famous for being clueless in their first year on defense. But he is he's very big and physical. I think he could probably play some power forward down the line. Uh, he'd probably have to get even a little bit bigger to do that and potentially uh, add some rebounding because uh, I think that's something that he didn't do particularly well, at least for a guy his size at the college level. But still, I, I, I do like Prince. He is bigger than I thought. So I'm with you on that. I just don't think, again, though, that he's got that huge upside. Both these guys are going to be role players. I think the Hawks know that. I just don't think that uh, fans are always, if you think about first round picks, you always think about, you know, first rounders, like your point earlier about those guys being irrelevant is largely true. At least in the fact that, you know, if if you're getting a guy at 21 where you got Bembry, you're just hoping for a good role player. That's, that's, that's the ceiling. Usually of that kind of pick every once in a while you unearth a gem that turns into something more. But for the most part, teams know that at 21, they're just looking for a guy who can play for them for the next few years. And that's kind of what they're looking for from Ben Breen, even Prince at 12. And this, this, this draft was not great. So you think about a lottery pick and you think, Oh, maybe that, maybe that guy'd be really good. But picking, you know, at, at 12 in a bad draft is kind of like picking at 20 in a regular draft. So I think they got they did well, in my opinion. But at the same time, it's sort of expectation tempering because I don't think either guy is going to be a star or anything like that. Yeah, you just don't know. And there have been some great picks, you know, late in the first round, mid first round. Uh, but it's it's just not that easy. And, you know, a lot of times and you talk to people who work in front offices and and scouts, you know, sometimes they are as surprised as anybody that somebody turns out to be a star who's picked there. Um, it, the numbers just don't favor it. Uh, but again, if you're the Hawks and you feel good about your core, uh, then that's what you want to do. You want to add pieces and guys who are going to be good role players. I, I will say the one thing the Hawks have done very well is second round picks. I mean, look at how many second round picks have been on the roster, you know, whether it's uh, Mike Scott or Mike Muscala 
Um, Eddie Tavares. Yeah, well, he hasn't contributed anything yet. But, but still, I mean, they, I mean, he's on the team. I mean, second round, even, even making your team a second rounder is kind of a big deal right. in the NBA. But they've gotten real value out of guys that they picked in the second round. Yep. So, um, you know, that's that's a that's a good, inexpensive way to, uh, you know, to fill out your roster. And, and, and that's really the key to me in, in the NBA is, you know, can you get can you get guys at low cost that you drafted to make contributions, you know, from those eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 spots? Because if you do, your, your depth is going to just sort of naturally pull you up over an 82 game season uh, and maybe give you a few extra wins. So, and that's one of the, yeah. And that's one of the things that this, this organization has done really well lately. You know, part of that was Danny Ferry, but even since Bud got here, you know, look at the roster and a bunch of these guys, even Kyle Korver is a guy who they've gotten on very, very reasonable, cheap contracts for really the whole time he's been here, top of stuff, Felocia's making very little money. It's all these peripheral guys who you don't think about as anything more than role players. But if you can really uh, be fiscally responsible on those guys and kind of add second rounders, like you said, that pop, like Mike, Mike especially Mike Scott, who's been a rotation guy. Uh, I, I don't really love Mike Scott, but the fact that you got a, a rotation player from a second round pick is a huge win. And the organization prides itself on that. They, they love going to find these guys. They went and found Malcolm Delaney this year, a guy who would like – from Europe for very, very cheap, like in a, in a backup point guard market where guys like DJ Augustine were making six, seven million dollars a year. They went and got Nelaney for two and a half million and they love that. I know, I know they yeah. do. They t- they've told me they do. So it's, it's something the organization loves to do and knowing, and now they have an owner that'll actually spend, but prior to that, um, they, you know, they couldn't spend money. It was one of those things where they were, they were hamstrung. So having an owner now that will spend with a combination of that fiscal responsibility is a good thing, I think. Yeah. And, but you know, for this team this year, uh, the one thing I'm looking at is they need to get off to a good start because the schedule sort of points to getting out of the gates fast. And if they do, I think they're going to be right on track. If they don't, you know, then they're going to have to make those wins up somewhere, somewhere down the line. So I think, uh, I think the, the first three weeks of the season are, are have a little more urgency maybe even than, uh, you know, than a lot, than, than a lot of teams. For sure. I mean, you look at the schedule, like you said, you know, Wizards, Sixers, Kings, Lakers, Wizards again to start the season. You know, none of those games are particularly threatening, although the Wizards I'm actually kind of high on. But at the same time, like if that's not a three and two, at least a three and two start, you're probably not feeling great about things. But, you know, we can go game by game. But something, you know, that that fast start has something to do with also the roster building that we talked about earlier with Paul Millsap and some of these veterans is that, if they don't get off to a fast start, you know, you're going to hear more and more whispers about a potential sell job, and uh, the schedule is more favorable early on, like you said. I do want to ask uh, about one more guy specifically, and that is Kyle Korver. Uh, he's kind of the only big-time shooter on the roster still, but he is 35 and now you know, still playing a starter's workload. Are you worried about Kyle, or are you in the camp where you're expecting him to bounce back, or is it the age thing where you're kind of scared away a little bit by Kyle? Well, this is another one of my little complaints with uh... – the NBA blogosphere, which is like people look at the ages of the players and always assume that, you know, there's this linear downward slide. And I don't think that holds true in every case. Um, I think each person is different and, you know, somebody, I think there's lots of examples of players who, you know, between 31 and 35, um, you know, there's not that much drop off. Um, you know, or maybe there's some, and then there's maybe not as much between 34 and 36 or whatever. Um, I, I don't think there's any real 
like formula to evaluating it. I mean, the only thing you can look at with Kyle Korver is this idea that he didn't have his full off season uh, in 2015 and that that contributed to his slow start and some of his struggles. I mean, the stuff I saw from Hawks Twitter last year during some of these games, you know, when he would maybe go one for eight that he's washed up. (laughs) I mean, that was just silly. Like he's still an effective player and I think he's going to be an effective player this year. Now, how effective I, I, you know, I don't know. I thought he looked pretty good in the preseason. I would in my perfect world have preferred for the Hawks to sign another or have another starting quality wing that they could have put in the, in the lineup and brought Corver off the bench because I just think that the quality of looks that he would tend to get with a second unit is going to be better. You know, and I, as I think, I think as you, as you transition into, you know, this mid 30 stage of his career, that actually lengthens his lifespan as a player and gives him a better opportunity to really impact the game. And I thought you frankly saw that in the Cleveland series last year when, when Bud, changed the starting lineup and brought him off the bench. You know, I really thought that that was a great look for him and the team. Uh, and he started making shots and impacted the game. And frankly, they almost won some of those games, but you know, the, uh, there just isn't another guy like the Tim Hardaway thing hasn't really worked out. So, you know, I just don't know, you know, maybe you could put Tabo in there, but I know they like him coming off the bench. Um, but we'll see. Like I thought, it was, I thought it was an encouraging preseason for Corver. So, um, so I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that, you know, that it, that it is him being back to his full off season of training. Uh, and he'll be more, a little more like the player he was in 14, 15. I'm on the, opt- I'm, I'm on the optimistic side of that as well because of the injury stuff. And the fact that if you take out the first couple of months last year, he was pretty darn good. He wasn't as good as he was two years ago, but once he got kind of acclimated, Corver was better than the overall numbers make him look. But that, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Hardaway in passing, and I don't want to do too much on Hardaway because my, my feelings are kind of out there on Hardaway. But that, that's where the Hardaway deal really kills the Hawks is that, you know, Seth Loesch is a guy I really like, but uh, not an offensive capable guy. I mean, Tabo's a decent offensive player because he moves the ball, but not a guy who's dynamic at all on that end of the, on that end of the floor. And Corver's really, again, you're, he's really your only knockdown shooter. Like, this team has a bunch of shooters who are capable capable but they really could use that 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 other guy on the wing who could, who could either create for himself and or make a, and become a knockdown shooter and that's kind of what they thought I think Hardaway was going to be and he's just never been that so you know I like I like Kent Bazemore quite a bit but you want to give him some help as well because Bays isn't, isn't the most offensively gifted player like he's gotten better and does some things on offense that I didn't think he'd ever be able to do frankly but at the same time like you don't want him to be your number one wing on on the offensive end of the court so uh, having Corver out there is important and I think uh, you you know, at 35, it's probably the case where he probably could be best suited coming off the bench or in a more limited role, but he's also the best guy for the role that he's in. So that's kind of a situation where they painted themselves into a corner with the Hardaway thing not working out. And, uh, you know, do you think he can get any better this year quickly? I mean, are you are you on the pro Tim Hardaway Jr. or are you kind of <laughs> with me on that one? <laughs> well, I, I was discouraged by the preseason. Let's put it that way. Yeah, you know, was there, was that, there was that stretch in March last year where he was really good, you know, and it seemed like boy, you know, Hawks University uh, graduate, you know, has has paid off here. Uh, and then he just sort of went back to 
to being a non-factor and wasn't great in the playoffs. So um, I don't I don't know what to make. Obviously, he's he's in a year where he's fighting for his career. I mean, if he wants to get another contract in the NBA, uh, he's got to play well this year. So you know maybe he was pressing a little bit too much, but um, he's got to produce. And you know sometimes that that does lead to a good season for a guy in that position. And you know sometimes it goes the other way. So. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, you just hold out hope that at some point he'll, he'll get in a rhythm and, you know, at least get you through a stretch, maybe, uh, you know, where you need him. That's, that's really all you can hope for. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to watch what Hardaway does. Cause he, he's also a restricted free agent, which really uh, hurts a lot of guys on the open market. Cause you know, they're talking about teams that can match it. And I'm not sure the Hawks are going to be super willing to give him the contract that, uh, he probably thinks he deserves here. So that's a guy to monitor. All right, Dan, before I let you get out of here, I have to get your official prediction for what the <laughs> Hawks do this year. Uh, where they stack up in the East and kind of there was uh, at least a range of their win loss record. If you don't want to give it to me specifically, no, I think they probably win the division and they're probably in the four five spot again. That's just my feeling. And yeah, I mean, I think they probably win, you know, 44. That would probably be what I would say 44 and 38. And win the division. All right, you're on record. I got that down. I'm going to have to go go to Old Takes Exposed after this if that doesn't work out for you. <laughs> That's, hey, they've they've hit me before they've and they will you. again. They don't get me because I'm not, I'm not nearly famous enough to be on Old Takes Exposed, but uh, I appreciate that. Oh, yeah, I do have to ask you one college football question because that's what you do, and I have to ask you since I have you here. Uh, people might love this. I know I have a lot of college football fans listening to the podcast, uh, and I'm a big Michigan fan, as I, I think you know. Uh, but my question actually is Alabama or the field? Well, I think at this point you probably would be smart to go Alabama um, as the way they've looked this year, but it doesn't always work out that way. Uh, you know, something could happen. Something could trip them up. You know, they already lost Eddie Jackson, you know, a couple more injuries on defense and, you know, maybe they're not quite as formidable, uh, but uh, no, they're awfully good. And I think they're, I think they're going to roll into the playoff undefeated. And, you know, then from there, it's a matter of, you know, can can a Clemson or, you know, can uh, either Ohio State or Michigan, you know, down the stretch here, raise their level to to be prepared to play a team like that? Well, now we've alienated everybody but Alabama fans. So that was that's kind of what I wanted to do at the end. But uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on, Dan. Anything you want to plug out there? I know people probably already know your work, but tell them where they can find you anyway. Oh, just, yeah, you know, usatoday.com. And of course, on Twitter at Dan Walken. And I'm happy to do it anytime. And Looking forward to getting down to Phillips Thursday night. For sure. Come by and see me, by the way, at the arena. I'll be, I'll be in attendance. All right. I'll, I'll do it. Thanks again, uh, Dan, for coming on. And for everybody else, stay tuned for the next episode of the Locked on Hawks podcast.